0: and I celebrated our 20th anniversary on Wednesday. And thank you. I mean... All of this is for you, babe. Uh, you're the one that had the hard job over the last 20 years. My job was pretty easy, being married to, to her. And, you know, when you get married, uh, you know a lot about that person before you make that commitment, obviously. But, but after you get married, there's still a lot of things that you continue to learn about them, maybe even a few um, surprises along the way. When we got married, Amber knew that I wasn't great with Money. Uh, I was really good at spending it. Like, I can spend money with the best of them. Credit cards, it's like you're not even spending money. I can swipe credit cards all day long, and I did. I was really good at spending money. I was really bad at everything else when it came to, to finances. And so when we got married, Amber knew that she was inheriting um, my debt. It was part of the package, baby. Uh, so she knew <laughs> like that was coming along with it. But what she didn't know was exactly how bad my spending habits were and that it also came with a side of low credit score. But she quickly found out uh, how much of a problem it was and what the debt that she truly took on. And, and many of our first arguments in our young marriage were around money. Maybe you experienced that as well. <laughs> I have this keen ability, always have, to justify any purchase that I want to make. And it was stressing her out. She's stuck by my side. Uh, praise God. And after a few years, uh, we started to kind of get our financial feet underneath us. But, but now we, as a couple, we weren't making the best financial choices and best choices with our money. We bought a, a, a small house when we moved to Owensboro, Kentucky that was within our budget. And so that was wise. But what wasn't wise is right after buying that house, we went out and we bought two brand new cars, uh, financing almost 100% of them because this was pre-2000. And banks were like, you want money? Sure, we'll give you money. Have at it. Uh, And so now they don't do that anymore because they learned that that's not wise to give young people like us unlimited access to, to money. We continued to use our credit cards way too much, student loans, racking up. Before long, we were up to our eyeballs in debt. We found ourselves strapped for cash. I imagine most of us, at one point or another in our life, even if we're doing well now, we can probably look back at a time where we felt a little tight for money. Our pockets were empty, our bank accounts were running on fumes. Most of us know what it's like to be strapped and barely scraping by. For some people, that is the day-to-day reality. Studies show that actually three out of every five Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. If you've been there, or maybe you're there right now, you know how consuming money can be. That it consumes your thoughts and it consumes your hearts. What I found is that money, money is one of those things that can consume you, whether you have a little bit or even if you have a lot. I know people who are strapped for cash, but I also know a lot of people who are strapped by cash. The truth is, whether you have a little or you have a lot, your heart can be strapped to your finances. Money can consume you no matter how much of it or how little of it you have. Money fights for your affection. It follows you around everywhere you go like like the piggy bank in the video. It creates a fear that you'll never have enough. And I, I know people who have plenty in their bank account and in savings and investments and they still worry, do I have enough? The pursuit A financial gain drives you, but you know it can also sometimes drive a wedge between you and the things in life that matter most. I think that's the story of the man in our text today. If you have a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Uh, Luke chapter 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible app, you can download the YouVersion Bible app here real quickly and, uh, and get that pulled up. Or we also have uh, Bibles there in the pew backs in front of you. We are starting a new series today called Strapped. And if you are new with us, I just want you to know we do not always talk about money. All right. I promise we do not always talk about money. Uh, if you, are regular, and like you finally invited the friend to come with church, to church with you, and they came this morning, and you're like, really, Sean? Really? Today's the day that you're talking about money? Here's what I want everyone to do. Take a deep breath. Let down your guard. We're going to be talking about money, but here's the thing. We're not going to ask for any of it. All right, we are not going to, to ask for any of your money during this series. This series is not about wanting something from you. The reason why we are committing the next four weeks to dive into this deeply is because we want something for you. Over the next few weeks, we are going to see how we can unstrap our hearts from our money and find. The freedom from financial worries and stress that I think that we all desire. Freedom that I think that Jesus wants us to experience. Jesus talked a lot about money and it's not because he wanted any of it. He talked about money so much because he knew that nothing competes for the affection of our hearts more than our finances. He also knows that nothing can free you from financial stress, quite like following God's principles for managing your money. So over the next few weeks, we are going to look at four key elements of financial confidence that our friend Ron Blue kind of has laid out. He has five decades or more of financial counseling, and he has imparted some of that wisdom into us. And we're going to be looking at four things like financial heart and health and habits and hope. And how all of those come together to unstrap our hearts from financial stress. And so today we are starting where Jesus starts when it comes to our money. Today we are looking at our hearts. Because when it comes down to it, money truly is a matter of the heart more than anything else. And I think that Jesus makes that abundantly clear in our text today. If you're familiar with scripture, you, you probably know the story of the rich young ruler. I find it interesting that this account is found three times out of the four Gospels, which means that it's probably something really important that the Father wants us to know. And it starts with this young man coming to Jesus with a question that I think all of us have asked in our life from time to time. Look at it with me. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. It says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Something that we're all curious about. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Let's pause right here because this is, this is a really powerful introductory statement that this young man makes. He asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What good deed can I do that will secure my place in heaven? He wanted to make sure that he left no good deed undone in his pursuit of eternal life. And did you notice how he referred to Jesus? He calls him good teacher. And that wasn't a common phrase in that day. And so it caught Jesus' attention. He focused in on it just a little bit. He's like, why do you call me good? Because you know that only God is good. And I think that this young man knew exactly what he was doing. He was making a profound statement of faith in who he believed Jesus to be. By calling Jesus good, knowing that God alone is good, he is making a statement of faith that Jesus is Lord. And I imagine in his mind, he's probably thinking, if I want to know how to find eternal life, why not go to the source of it? Why not go to the creator of life and eternity? But his question that he asked Jesus reveals a little bit of an error in his thinking. It's a question that presumes that we can do enough to earn our way into heaven, that we can be good enough on our own to secure our place in eternal life. Jesus, though, meets him where he is, and he, and he answers his direct question with a direct answer. Verse 20, he says, You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy. I imagine him straightening up his shoulders and saying pridefully. (laughs) Jesus jumps right to the Ten Commandments. But did you notice that he skips the first few about loving God and worshiping him alone? and, And he goes right to the moral law. Of the Ten Commandments, things like "Do not murder," "Do not steal," "Do not commit adultery," uh, "Do not drink," "Do not chew," "Do not date girls who do." And this guy is like nailing it, not doing any of those things. I'm good. Now, why does Jesus start there? Like, why doesn't Jesus correct this guy's thinking error and teach him that eternity is not found in? The good things that we do or the bad things that we avoid, that it's found in the grace of God alone. Now, here's what I think. See, the truth is that you can keep every single one of those commandments and still not love God. I know a lot of people who aren't followers of Jesus but live good, moral, upright lives. They're well respected in the community. They're generous. They're filled with joy. To be honest, they're kinder than some Christians (laughs) that I've encountered. You probably know people like that too. You don't need Jesus to be good. You don't need Jesus to be good. And there are a lot of people who are good they're good at keeping the second half of the Ten Commandments, but there's no room in their heart for Jesus. The gospel, though, is a matter of our heart's affection and what it's set on, who it's set on. It's not about outward religious activity or good moral living. Jesus did not come to make bad things good, but dead things live. He came to bring us new life and back into a right relationship with the Father. He came to bring freedom to those of us who are caught up in the burden and the bondage of our sin. I think that's what's going on here for this young man. He's doing all the right things. But his heart is strapped by something else. And in his wisdom, Jesus is able to diagnose the ailment in his soul. And then, like a skilled surgeon, he takes his knife and he cuts right to the heart of the issue in this man's heart. In verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. In Mark's gospel, we we see a little detail in this account that, that Matthew and Luke leave out. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Meaning Jesus did not look at this young man with judgment no more than he looks at us with judgment. Jesus looked at him with compassion and empathy because he knew that his great wealth had a strong, tight hold on his heart. And he knew that nothing else would be, ever be allowed in as long as it did. And I find it interesting that this is the only person that Jesus asked to take such an extreme measure with their wealth. In other words, selling everything and giving it to the poor is not a universal requirement for following Jesus. But I think that there is a universal principle for all of us to learn when it comes to our finances and our heart. When we loosen the grip on our money, our money begins to loosen its grip on our heart. Our money loosens its grip on us. In the case of this rich young ruler, the grip was so tight that Jesus' prescription for his cure was greater than anything that he would ask anyone else. Extreme circumstances call for extreme measures. But for all of us who follow Jesus and desire to follow Jesus, his instruction to us is the same, to hold on to our stuff loosely so that our stuff does not hold tightly on to us. This man's wealth was a rival to the kind of wholehearted devotion that God and the gospel calls us to. And Jesus says elsewhere that you cannot serve both God and money. There's not enough room in our heart for both of them to sit on the throne. And the truth is, money has a way of strapping our hearts and just squeezing everything else out of it. The love and pursuit And fear of money can be all-consuming, and it doesn't leave room for anything else. Which is why Jesus says in verse 24, it says Jesus looked at him. Again, compassion, empathy, he looks at him, and he said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus uses hyperbole here to make his point. When something or someone sits on the throne of your heart, whether it's good deeds or or a relationship or, or money, when something else sits on that throne, there is no more room for him. And he is the only way to find the eternal life that this young man desires, that we all desire, which is why I believe this text is not about money. It is about your heart and what is holding on to it. And Jesus cares a lot about that. And so how do we unstrap our hearts from the control of money? And we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks But as I wrap up this morning, I want to just quickly mention four heart perspectives that we can adopt that I believe will help us find not just financial freedom, but also freedom from financial burden that we desire. And the first one is this, it's stewardship. Stewardship says, God owns it all, and I am a manager of his resources. Stewards are people who care for the belongings of others. They manage the resources that someone else owns. Psalm 24:1 says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God owns everything. He owns all of it. We are just the stewards who manage it for him. Who manage what he has entrusted to us, whether it be a little or whether it be a lot. And when we see ourselves as stewards, what we do is we begin to hold on to these things that we have loosely, and we use them in the way that he desires for them to be used, since ultimately they belong to him anyway. He's just entrusted his resources to us for a little while. That's why one of our values here as a church is we live like God owns everything. It's our number one value. We want to be good stewards of everything that is the Lord's. And we want to use them the way that he desires for them to be used. What is true in our church, we hope to be true in our lives as well. The second hard perspective we must adopt if we want to live with financial freedom is faith. Implementing faith into our finances means regularly asking, God, what do you want me to do in this financial situation? What do you want me to do in this financial situation? That is step one. Step two is then following through and actually doing it. (laughs) The, The young man in our text knew what God wanted him to do. He didn't have the faith to follow through and actually do it. And bringing faith into our finances means we bring God into our decision-making process about our money. I've been uh, preparing for this series uh, for a couple of months now. We, we put it on the, the sermon series calendar back in the, in the spring and uh, around November, I started kind of doing a little bit more research and, and deep dive in, into it. And, and I don't think it's by accident that around that same time, the, the temptation to buy stuff has, like, only increased in in my life. You know, like, my car is now 13 years old, has 130,000 miles on it, and I'm starting to think, oh, man, a new car, that sure would be nice. I'm starting to look at some other things that are aging, like, oh, maybe we could, like, spend some money on this over over here. I don't think it's by accident that as, as I've been preparing my own heart to talk about stewardship and faith and all of that, that Satan's kind of, we wiggled his way in there with some temptation to me. And I've realized over the years that if our checkbook reveals the priorities of our heart, then if what we spend our money on really points to what we value and hold most dear. If our checkbook reveals our priorities, then our Amazon search history maybe reveals its desires. <laughs> our Google search history maybe reveals its desires. I've had to check my own heart several times recently and ask, why why am I desiring this so much? What hole am I trying to fill that I think buying this is going to accomplish? Is there something that God would want me to spend his resources on? Something that, that we've had to learn the hard way is, If I say yes to buying this, then what am I saying no to down the road? And all of this comes down to a faith issue for me, and I wrestle with it. I have the internal struggles probably that you have as well. And I ask myself, am I really satisfied with the Lord and what I have, or have I bought into the lie that just a little bit more is going to be enough? That I need something else. Seeking God's direction in your finances requires a third thing. It requires wisdom. Faith and wisdom kind of go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. Faith helps you respond to God's leading about your money. Wisdom helps you know where he wants you to go and what he wants you to do based on his word. Scripture is filled with wisdom about money, and we're going to look at some of that wisdom in the coming weeks, and I I think that it is an act of grace that God has given us such great direction. He knows that nothing consumes us more than our finances, and so he gives us clarity on what to do with them and how to hold on to them. And so he gives us plenty of wisdom in his word, but he also gives us wisdom in the moment when we need it. One of my favorite verses is James 1.5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom... If you're not sure what to do, ask God who gives generously without finding fault. I love that last part right there because it means that God is not going to, when I come to him and say, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Can you give me wisdom? He's not going to be like, Sean, we've been over this a hundred times and you still don't know what to do? Come on. No, he's going to look at me with grace and mercy and give me wisdom that I need in the moment one more time knowing he's probably going to have to do it again. And I found this to be true in everything in life, including how I handle my finances. As we adopt the heart perspective of stewardship and faith and wisdom and all those things come together, then we land on the fourth part. It's contentment. The world tells us that what we need is just more and newer and bigger and better and shinier And we need that if we want to feel successful or secure or satisfied or significant. But I'm telling you, it is a lie. It is a lie from our enemy who only wants to strap your heart even tighter to your stuff, to your debt, to your finances. He wants to squeeze out the financial freedom that God desires for us. The author of Hebrews gives us a straightforward antidote to that kind of materialism and paints a picture of how stewardship can unstrap our hearts. They write in chapter 13, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money. Notice the love of money, not money, the love of money. And be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. God knows what you need. And he invites you to trust in him. And just as we sang, it is sweet to trust in Jesus. To rest in him knowing that he is your good father who loves you, who will never leave you, let you down. And so whether you have a little or you have a lot, practicing stewardship and faith and wisdom and contentment with your money has the power to unstrap your heart from your finances and will prepare you for any any financial decision or storm or blessing that comes your way. You'll be able to make financial decisions not in fear, but with a great sense of freedom and confidence. That's what God desires for you. He wants to unstrap your heart from anything that causes you to live in worry and fear. Most of all, he wants to unstrap your heart from anything that, that takes his rightful place on the throne of your heart, whether it be your sin, your brokenness, or your burden. And it's why he sent Jesus man, maybe your first step today is to accept Jesus into your life. Put him in that rightful place in your heart and start following him. Let's pray. God, we've, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about this series and Lord, I'm, I'm grateful for your word, and for the wisdom of it. I'm grateful for the direction that I feel like you've given us over for the next uh, few weeks. But, but Lord, there's a burden, uh, as you know, as going into this series, because I know that, that for so many people, this is a, this is a pain point. It, is, it has driven a wedge between them and uh, someone that they love. Finances can just be messy Lord, I imagine that there are probably people in here that have been a part of churches that have not talked about this correctly and and maybe has has even used this topic as a form of of spiritual abuse. God, I know that that breaks your heart. Lord, I pray that, that we will handle this topic wisely. I pray, Lord, that you will will take down any barrier that we maybe have put up. I I imagine that as soon as I started talking, there were probably people that that just tuned out because they don't want anyone else talking about this. It's it's just so intimate. It's such an important part of our lives. But God, you have so much wisdom to say to it. And so, Lord, may we hear from you. God, thank you that you desire our hearts And that you are willing to do anything, teach anything, remove anything that gets in the way because you know that in you is where our hearts find the peace and the love and the joy that we desire. So Lord, may we experience that. And I pray it in Jesus' name.